Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books Network. I am George Moon, your host for this podcast. I'll be speaking with Mark G. Hanna, Associate Professor at UC San Diego, about his book, Pirate's Nest and the Rise of the British Empire, 1570 to 1740, published by the University of North Carolina Press for the Omohundro Institute of Early American History and Culture. In it, Professor Hanna offers a unique perspective on the roles played by piracy in the formation of the British colonial project. He weaves a fascinating story based on the legal and commercial sources he's found to illustrate the ways that the English government often tolerated and at times encouraged predation on the high seas. The goods obtained by these thinly thinly disguised robberies and pillagings not only helped prime the economic pump of England's North American and Caribbean colonies, they were often vital for their survival during their early years. The tide turned against unregulated privateering and outright piracy after London reformed key aspects of the overseas trade. As a result, formerly scarce commodities became available in the New World, diminishing the demand for stolen property. Simultaneously, the royal government also sought to rationalize its legal system, making it easier for admiralty courts to prosecute pirates while also simplifying the process of selling off goods seized by legitimate privateers who operated on the king's behalf. So, uh, Professor Hanna, if you wouldn't mind, uh, could you tell us a little bit about your background? Uh, what led you to become a historian? Hi, thank you for having me. I um, I grew up in a small uh, colonial American town uh, in New Jersey. It was near uh, where George Washington had his winter quarters. So when I was a child, uh, I grew up with all these old buildings and I ran cross country in high school and I used to run past uh, the places where the soldiers used to, to be set up. And so I was always fascinated with early American history in particular. I've also uh, been interested in, in more broadly sort of in a broad humanities type way um, questions about why people make the decisions that they make. Uh, And this is what historians do, which is, thinking deeply about the context of someone's life and trying to understand what it is about their upbringing, about the context, about the world around them, about their education, their religious systems that they believe in that compel them to make decisions that they make. Uh, And you could take those sort of problems and try to apply them to today and try to understand why people who are so different from you uh, decide uh, to make, decide to, to live a particular way or vote a particular way. Uh, wear a particular type of clothing and uh, or, or watch certain television shows. And so I've always been interested in sort of trying to understand people that are just very different from me. And historians, we build up, you know, an incredible toolbox to, to sort of go after that problem, which is to, to understand why people that are not only different from you in geographic context, but also obviously in a chronological context, why, uh, why they acted the way they did. And, working on piracy was the most sort of extreme example of this because these are people who were 
making decisions that are you know at first you can't even imagine uh, making, which is you know acting with extreme violence. Um, and so I, I was always try to always, always try to understand um, what it is that motivates people like that to, to act the way they do. So you've answered a bit of the next question, but um, could you tell us more about why you zeroed in on piracy for the focus of your book? Uh, it's an interesting question. I actually had absolutely no interest in pirates at all my entire life. Uh, I never dressed as a pirate. Uh, I did not read pirate stories as a child. I actually loved the movie Goonies, but the pirates really only show up at the end, and, and the pirate isn't even alive in that movie. Um, so I was never really interested in piracy. I went to grad school to study fatherhood in early America, uh, and I was actually really interested in the way uh, individuals who made their way across the Atlantic thought of themselves and the families that they were raising uh, in the context of, uh, of North America and the early colonies. And so I actually wrote about, started to write about a man named William Harris, who uh, was one of the first settlers of Rhode Island. And he built this estate, a uh, massive estate that's almost a third of what is today Rhode Island. And he was a very litigious man. And he kept building and uh, building this large estate through lawsuits uh, and he imagines himself as a very large Abrahamic figure, and he wrote a will that went into seven generations. And I was just really blown away with the concept of this guy imagining starting a new world and a new Israel. Uh, but it was interesting. In my third year in grad school, I uh, presented a paper about William Harris, and it went to my colleagues and uh, and my advisors. And uh, they noticed that the last three pages, the best part, and the last three pages described how William Harris, who was in his late 60s, needed to sail to London to pursue a lawsuit as part of this growing of this large estate. And on his way to London, he was captured by Algerian pirates and he was enslaved in North Africa for almost two years. And he eventually was ransomed and he made his way to London and he died within weeks. Uh, and I thought this was just sort of an interesting ending to something that was much larger about social history and family history and history of Puritanism. But my colleagues suggested that actually the pirates are the most interesting part of this. And they noted that, in fact, they had come across pirates in Rhode Island in the 1690s and thought it was interesting, but it had nothing to do with what they were writing about. Uh, and another colleague who saw pirates in the 1680s in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, and thought it was an interesting aside that no one seemed to care that they were there. Uh, but, of course, no one also was writing about it. And so my own advisor, who uh, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, who's a fantastic social uh, historian, who knows nothing about pirates suggested that's really amazing that no one has actually written about these people who seem to be everywhere, but no one seems to think they're all that remarkable. And so I was really upset because I was pretty set into what I thought I was going to be studying in grad school. Um, but it did seem remarkable that no one had really written about these people. So I, I said, okay, I'll spend one month in the archives and I'll look at government records and I'll look at letters and trial records uh, and correspondences back between England and the colonies, and just I'll see if there's anything of significance there. Uh, and after a month, I saw pirates everywhere, uh, and they were settling down and buying land and marrying local people and taking positions of power and authority. And it just just seemed remarkable to me that these people had really their lives had really been untouched by historical scholarship. And so I, that really was the driving factor to getting into this project was just the almost the shock value that people hadn't written about uh, these pirates, not so much that I myself was drawn to it initially. And, and that actually presented to me a number of uh, huge advantages 
which is the mass, actually the majority of, of pirate history, some of it very good, um, comes from the fan side first, <laughs> meaning that even the historians, even, even academic, great academic historians, they've often uh, entered the world of pirate studies, which is actually a, a thing. Uh, they sort of enter the world of pirate studies from uh, the starting point of being a fan or someone who is really fascinated with it or, or, or taken by it as a child. And, and the danger of that is that you're, you sometimes get too caught up in the swashbuckling stories and you can miss the underlying issues and problems uh, that relate to early American society or the entire sort of structure of the British Empire that I think are far more interesting in the big picture. And so for me, not coming out as a fan is that the questions that I had for the sources that I was looking at were really historians' questions. Uh, and they were really questions about what, why was this happening and, and what does this tell me about these communities and the society and their economic world and their legal system and the, and the religious ideology that they believed in. So I think it, it kept me it kept me in a, in, a, in a sort of solid viewpoint of being the historian first. And I'd say that I became a fan after that <laughs> I, I worked on the book and, and, and I'd say I, I probably became more of a fan having taught a class called the golden age of piracy at UC San Diego for many years now. And I think teaching the class has made me a fan, but it's, it's really only in conjunction with having been someone trying to figure out the story First. Before we go too much further, can you uh, give us a good uh, working definition of exactly what a pirate is and what a privateer is? How do they differ? That's a great question. Um, well, the class I just mentioned, this Golden Age of Piracy class, I actually, one of the first things I do is I ask students to look up the definition of the word piracy in the Oxford English Dictionary. And I don't have it perfectly at the top of my head, but it's really something along the lines of someone who commits a form of violence at sea with without the sort of permission or authority of, uh, without sort of official permission or authority. And so I line that general definition up and then I tear the entire thing apart. Uh, and I ask questions about, well, what do you mean by authority? Does that mean a, a, a king has, give, has to give you authority to permit that act of violence? What if it's a, a governor who doesn't have permission from the king? What if it's a governor from a different country? But if it's uh, the Duke of Savoy who lives in a small duchy on, in a landlocked part of Europe, um, can, what nations are you allowed to fight? Can you not fight? I mean, so, uh, so piracy itself is the, 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 the definition is open to this just extremely flexible legal uh, conundrums. But privateer, on the other hand, uh, is a word that I actually give a history to in the book. Um, I'm one of the first to actually write about the word itself and actually the way it was created and, and, and how it rose. Uh, it was actually uh, uh, before the 1670s, individuals who acted privately, meaning that they had their own ships and they financed their own voyages and they fought against uh, specific enemies of their particular um, nation. They were known as private men of war. So Sir Francis Drake would have been a famous private man of war. Uh, the word privateer actually was coined in Jamaica uh, soon after the conquest of Jamaica in 1655. Uh, and it began to describe individuals who were not quite pirates in the sense that they were fighting 
enemies that they perceived as enemies, but they might sometimes be fighting them in time of peace. Um, so they weren't really pirates, but they weren't really uh, officially acting against, you know, with on the behest of a, a legal authority on the land either. So in the beginning, privateer was a very loose term. Uh, almost every pirate called himself a privateer during most of the 17th century. Uh, the word uh, was just something used by everybody very flexibly. And one of the stories that I tell in the book is how the word privateer becomes much more formal. Uh, and and royal authorities and, and colonial officials begin to sort of want to define privateering in a much more legal and structured and formal way. And by really the 17 teens and 20s, privateer becomes a thing that is structured and, and it is defined by having a piece of paper, which is a commission that is signed by an authority. And that authority has been given power by the highest of all authorities, meaning the crown. And you've been given a letter that says you may attack only the enemies that you are at war with in a very specific region, in a very specific time. And the ships that you take as plunder from those enemies have to be taken back to the exact port where you received your commission. So it becomes very specific. Um, and that that is sort of the history that I'm trying to tell is sort of a history of of extreme flexibility and sort of mutability of terms to a much more formal and structured understanding of the, what, what these two things mean. One of the, one of the issues that uh, you, you get to almost right uh, from the get-go is um, a really wonderfully named judge of the High Court of the Admiralty who went by the name of Julius Caesar. And uh, you tell us about his... Uh, mission to bring some sort of order to the West Country. So could you talk a little bit about Julius Caesar and why you started the book at that particular moment? Yes. Yeah, so um, I decided to bring the, my dissertation uh, was focused on Charleston, South Carolina and Newport, Rhode Island and roughly the 1670s and then into the 1730s. And so I was really interested in these colonial support of pirates and then how this very dramatically changed within almost a 30 to 40 year period of time into large executions across the American colonies. I uh, received a generous postdoctoral fellowship at the Omohundro Institute of Early American History and Culture that was sponsored by the National Endowment for Humanities. And when I received that, I, I was given the, uh, provided really the ability to write something bigger. And I thought, you know, maybe I could write something that tells the story of the sort of entire British Empire hinged upon this concept of formalizing notions of piracy and privateering and, and private maritime warfare. So I decided I wanted to start in Elizabethan England. And, and one of the reasons for that is it's the late 16th century is really the time when Englishmen begin, Englishmen and women begin to really think of themselves as potentially producing an empire, constructing an empire and moving outwards in much more aggressive ways. And this, the real forerunners of this were uh, men who were born and raised in the Elizabethan West Country, which is Devon and Cornwall. And a lot of them were, were sailing ships out of uh, Plymouth. And so I was really interested in, in these individuals, and some of them are some of the most famous sailors in, in history, Sir Francis Drake, Sir Walter Raleigh, uh, Sir John Hawkins. 
So I was really interested in these individuals because they really were the forerunners. In fact, uh, Drake is the model for every single private maritime uh, or sea marauder in the rest of British history. So I really wanted to start with Drake. So I was interested in studying these guys, and I came across the person who wanted to rein them in. And his name is Julius Caesar, obviously a phenomenal name. And there's an interesting history behind, behind the, uh, that name. But he, uh, he represented um, authority that was originated uh, at the center of power, meaning at the crown level and, and the crown's uh, sort of gift of authority to the Lord High Admiral. And the Lord High Admiral's right to have authority and jurisdiction over the high seas or, his, or the Englishmen when sailing over the high seas and in the waters near the shore. And Caesar was sort of was a vice admiral, or Caesar was a representative of the Lord High Admiral, and he was someone who was a, a brilliant intellect, um, someone whose papers are just incredibly extensive and detailed. They're in the British Library, and uh, and he was someone who really believed zealously in the rights of the Admiralty uh, and the rights of the Elizabethan Crown to sort of maintain that Admiralty jurisdiction over these individuals who had long traditions of doing whatever they want uh, in the far reaches of Britain. So I, it was really interesting how Caesar, uh, uh, in the book basically starts with this, this really phenomenal man, Caesar, uh, writing this long list of rules and, and rights uh, and powers that the Admiralty have over, uh, over those people at sea and over uh, the sort of the, the borders, the maritime borders of the, the island, and he prepares this long list, and he sends it ahead of himself before he goes on a. He's planning on going on a really long tour uh, of the Elizabethan West Country, and he starts on his tour, and, uh, and he gets about halfway there. His letters are written back to London, saying, "I don't think this is a really good idea. Uh, I've been hearing news that I'm not going to be very welcome uh, where I'm about to go." And then he writes back soon, saying, "I think my life is in danger. Uh, I don't think I should go any farther." And he heads back. Uh, to London, and essentially writes that this is a this is a serious problem, and the problem that he finds out is that pirates who are English uh, are plundering all throughout uh, the Atlantic with the, the English Channel. Some are heading into the Mediterranean, and they're plundering all sorts of people who are at peace with England, and they're being really actively supported and welcomed in uh, towns like Plymouth. Uh, and he's the most shocking part to him was this wasn't some sort of underclass of, of common sailors sort of struggling to get by, but they were supported by the most powerful names, the most powerful families, the most well-to-do celebrated individuals in the Elizabethan West Country. And he was really shocked by this. And that's the reason why he stopped his tour short, because he felt like, uh, you know, uh, there's, there's a chance I could get killed <laughs> trying to go and stop this activity. Um so I was really interested in him, and, and another thing that drew me to him was, uh, in a really mundane way, Elizabethan handwriting is terrible, and this man's handwriting was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I never missed a thing. He was just spotless, and not only was it great, he used to he would um, he would draw. I think they're called manacles. Uh, he would draw in these little hands that would point at what he thought were important parts of his notes. Uh, and so he, I remember I always had this feeling that I was sort of in a conversation with Caesar, the two of us talking, and he would stop for a second and point out and he'd say, Mark, pay attention to this. It's like, this is really important to me. 
Uh, and so I had this, I could always have this feeling of interacting with this guy and, and feeling like he was trying to tell me what really meant was really important to him and what, what was, uh, I should be writing down and, and, you know, paying special attention. Yeah. Uh, Caesar and, and people, uh, like him, uh, in, in the following years, they seem to have run into, uh, other brick walls, um, uh, especially when it came to, uh, prosecuting, uh, pirates and their accomplices. And, uh, there seems to be a sort of, uh, double bind or overlap of jurisdictions when it came to, um, actually getting the, um, aiders and abettors into court. Could, could you talk about that? Yeah. So there's a, a, a bit of a catch 22, uh, which is, uh, an aider or better, meaning that someone who is assisted in a crime can only be found guilty if a crime has been determined to have been committed. And that's fairly logical, right? So uh, you cannot have assisted or helped someone commit a crime if that someone has not been found guilty for having committed it. And the aider or the better is someone who is on land, meaning someone who's bought gold, uh, has purchased spices or perfumes from someone who stole them from someone else. And, and so uh, so that means that there is an aider or better, and that person is on land, and that person uh, is tried on a land court, which is the common law, which is sort of the traditional longstanding law of, of Britain, which is based on local traditions, and it's maintained, or it's, it's, it's adjudicated by a jury of one's peers, Um Unfortunately, alternatively, that, that crimes that take place at sea, because they take place away from a community, uh, and they often involve international uh, or, or people from different nations, uh, that that actually crimes are committed at sea are committed in admiralty courts. Uh, and they're committed under a completely different legal system, which is called the civil law. The civil law is a codified law that is written down. It's determined. It is not a traditional law. It's a law that is that it is uh, codified and understood by people of not simply of England, but of other nations. And so if a Dutch person, person feels like their ship has been stolen unfairly, they can go and read the civil law statutes and they can go and try their, their case in an MLT court. And so you have two different court legal systems. One deals with the high sea, the other deals with the land. Um, and so let's say a, someone is, uh, shows up in the town of Plymouth and the rumors pa- are passed around that they've been an act of piracy. Uh, and locals within the last week have been buying all sorts of interesting things from this person. They might have been buying calico from India or uh, gold from the Red Sea. And someone says, you know, I think this person's a pirate. I'm sure this person's a pirate. Well, as you can imagine, no one in that community has any interest whatsoever of finding that person guilty because they would be the original primary uh, person. Uh, and if they're found guilty, then aiders and abettors can be found guilty. And so there is actually very little incentive to find a pirate guilty. Uh, and this is actually seems like a silly little thing, but it actually existed uh, and was a common problem for decades and decades and decades that there was actually no interest whatsoever for local communities to find a primary, meaning pirate, guilty because it would have an impact on anybody who had traded or supported them. The best example of this is in Bermuda. 
in the 1690s, I'm sorry, just after 1700, when Bermuda, almost the entire island has been supporting pirates. And so when an individual named George Larkin comes into town and tries to implement emeraldy courts so that they can find pirates guilty, the entire island gathers together as a community, as a whole, and denounces this man and starts accusing him of all sorts of crazy uh, crimes. And they throw him in prison for a long time. And so it gives you this sense that sort of the support of this illicit behavior on land uh, necessitates, in many ways, the inability to find the high seas crimes, or high, find someone guilty for high seas crimes in that regard. You brought us over to the other side of the Atlantic, and uh, you can't really have pirates without treasure. And the main thrust of your book is uh, what the pirates actually do for these uh, colonial possessions, why it was so much in the interest of of the elites and uh, the average person not to uh, convict pirates, in fact, uh, to turn at the very least a blind eye towards them. Can you talk about those commodities for Really, um, on the peripheries of the British Empire, individual communities tended to be unable to tap into particular global markets that they necessarily really needed to um, to get into to actually help foster and support the growth of those colonies. And a lot of this had to do with either just uh, distance or, um, you know, being at war with a particular uh, other country or nation, or more specifically, the control that large monopolies had over particularly valuable trades. And so there are a handful of commodities I talk about, but I'll talk about um, really a few specific ones that are really a focal point of the book. Uh, one would be currency, which is the thing that actually drove me into the project early on was my fascination in sort of global currency movements and, and uh, colonial communities were always desperate for a local medium of exchange, meaning that they had no or very little access to silver and gold or anything that they could use for exchange. And in fact, in New England, they used wampum, which is a part of a quahog shell that you can still find today in Rhode Island and other parts of New England. And they used those shells as a, as a medium of exchange. And so there was a desperate desire to be able to have something a little more solid and sturdy. And so that, that interest in acquiring Spanish silver was a very early part of, of colonial expansion. And some of the most famous celebrated figures, the, the pilgrims like William Bradford or the Puritans who arrived later, like John Winthrop, they all uh, described in their journals men who committed blunt acts of piracy against the Spanish arriving in those colonies. And, and they, they called them literally godsends, meaning that God had sent this individual into the Caribbean to plunder the Spanish, and they brought them to save these poor pilgrims uh, from the desperate straits that they found themselves in financially by bringing them uh, uh, silver from the Spanish West Indies. And so they tied together their religious beliefs with these sort of beliefs and the need to plunder the Spanish. So that was one. And, and I talk quite a bit about currency and, and currency manipulation and counterfeiting. And I won't go into much more detail here, but uh, and there are a couple of other significant commodities. The other uh, is the uh, slave trade. Uh, many colonies initially found themselves in labor shortages and were not able to tap into the sort of horrific trade in human cargo that began in much the British Empire in the early 17th century. And 
The first slaves that were in fact brought to Jamestown, Virginia and Bermuda were bought by pirates. Uh, and uh, that's true uh, of the early period of uh, initially uh, Barbados and Jamaica and other places that pirates were bringing in um, slaves stolen from both the Portuguese and uh, the Spanish. And in large part, uh, when the Royal African Company monopoly was uh, began in the latter half of the 17th century, they were selling slaves primarily to the big sugar islands of Barbados and Jamaica or reselling them to the Spanish for larger profits. And so colonies uh, like Virginia uh, or South Carolina uh, that desperately uh, wanted uh, slave labor, they had a real inability to acquire those slaves in legal channels. And so they uh, acquired them uh, through plunder uh, and through attacking uh, Spanish colonies in particular. The last uh, that I'll mention is uh, were goods that are typically luxury items that uh, one could obtain in the Indian Ocean. Uh, and typically you could obtain them uh, from uh, goods that came from the Mughal Empire of India. Uh, and that includes calico, which is cotton. Uh, calico uh, is much easier to dye than wool, which is the primary export of Britain. Uh, it's lighter than wool. Uh, and so calico was heavily desired. It, it could come in all sorts of different colors and prints and designs. And so it was a, a beautiful luxury item that, that particularly the governors of, uh, of the American colonies loved to provide themselves and their wives. Uh, also, silk uh, was coming in in large uh, amounts uh, from the Indian Ocean. And this really began in the 1690s. Uh, and you start seeing these other luxury item goods. And then you start seeing some other things that came from Africa or in the Indian Ocean, like elephants, tucks, uh, start showing up uh, from pirate ships um, and sort of other sort of fanciful um, objects and goods that were brought in. And particularly for those colonial leaders that saw themselves at the as being at the height of the social system or at the height of the social hierarchy, but perhaps didn't have the money to display it the way they would like. Uh, were the probably the ones who were the most active supporters of pirates coming from places like the Indian Ocean because they could acquire these luxury items and they could make their themselves and their wives look the part in ways they couldn't afford to do uh, on their own. And so you really see a pretty obvious connection between pirates from the Indian Ocean or the Red Sea coming in and being welcomed really openly by the governor of Pennsylvania or New York in particular. And so these desires for these goods are not really, they don't, and they don't really um, end until those monopolies become challenged. Uh, and the Royal Africa Company starts losing out to independent traders uh, beginning in the six, late 1690s and really into the 17-teens. And by the 17-teens, you start seeing slaves coming in by individual private traders and much larger uh, groups into the North American colonies that had ever been happened before. Uh, and the same with East India Company goods. Those good, a lot of those goods are were, uh, were required to sail from the Indian Ocean to England and then reshipped to the colonies at exorbitant prices. By the 17-teens, they start uh, arriving legally uh, uh, without having to pay dues and other costs, and so they become much cheaper by the 17-teens. And so you see much less need to support men stealing them or taking them or seizing them illegally. So this uh, shift that... Uh away from a monopoly structure uh, to uh, a more free market 
system of trade. Could you, could you tell us how that came about? Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a quite a complicated, um, story in a lot of ways. Uh, the, uh, one of the arguments that the colonial officials uh, made when they were sort of cornered in regards to their behavior in supporting pirates was that um, they didn't have much of a choice. That they weren't, they they, they just essentially ignored uh, where those goods really came from originally. And so, but then they would also, when they would write letters back to their accusers back in England, responding to their support of pirates, piracy, they would often also include. Uh, extra little notations that would say things like, yes, and by the way, we haven't had a shipment of slaves here in, since I was, you know, in the last 20 years. Uh, and they would sort of remind back in England, uh, individuals in charge of sort of administering the empire, they would persistently remind them that, that uh, yes, things like this happen here, smuggling, illicit goods, we can't help, but really, there's not much we can do about it, but you should keep in mind that the policies that you have installed uh, in England are one of the reasons why we're doing this and one of the reasons we can't help to do this. And so in 1696, uh, the crown initiated or helped support a, the rise of the Board of the Trade, which is one of the first really coherent or formalized bodies in England that actually not necessarily administer over the empire, but actually has uh, sort of, it's sort of more of an information gathering system. Uh, that sort of tries to understand exactly how the empire functions and how it works. And at first in the colonies, they perceive this body as punitive, that like this, this group is going to sit there and they're going to find out all the tricky and troubling things we've been doing for many years and they're going to get us all in trouble. And they all think that at first, but then after a while they start realizing that maybe this could be our voice. Maybe this could be a, a group that could explain to administrators back in England that, that yeah, we've been doing this, but we've been doing this because we just haven't had access to these these goods that we really need and the board of trade is actually it becomes at the forefront of challenging a lot of the monopolies and uh, for in the royal africa company monopoly in fact um ends by the 17 teens uh because of the fact that the board of trade does relate to these complaints from the colonies it says that they yes they've been getting slaves illegally but in large part because the monopoly is not doing its job and it's not adequately supplying the needs of of the particular colonies and so i see this uh you know that the the first third of the book or first half of the book is really why these communities supported piracy. And I start highlighting all these sort of injustices and all these sort of complaints. And then the middle part of the book is just the transformation element. And that's really the, the nitty gritty details of really how, um, how this sort of what they considered an inequitable system eventually gets transformed to something that looks a little bit more fair, I suppose. Um, and, and in the end, once the colonists start perceiving the fact that they can actually obtain these goods in ways that are relatively legitimate, then they really don't see themselves as having any desire to support individuals committing acts of violence that seem unjustified. Well, they seem to go from uh, not supporting them to actively uh, suppressing them. And uh, places like uh, Rhode Island become very dangerous for pirates. Uh, can you... Fill us in a little bit on on that uh, aspect of change. Yeah, so I think one thing that's always, um, if you think actually the big picture of the book and what makes it different um, than a lot of other books, well, one thing that makes it different from a lot of other books about piracy is the scale and the scope. Uh, it has a 
very large chronology and it, uh, and it entails a very large space. And the reason for doing that for me was when people who watch movies uh, and think about what pirates look like or sound like or how they dress, which is, you know, like Johnny Depp, um, they think of a very specific moment. And it's a moment that's roughly 1716 to 1726, which is just a decade. And if you're an early American historian, that's a blip. I mean, it's just the tiniest fraction of time. And the, but that is a period when, when you think of Blackbeard and Black Bart and the female pirates, Anne Bonnie and Mary Reed. And it's, the very, it's a very colorful, very noted period of time. Uh, and for some reason, that has become the defining moment of piracy, what, what, what I, how I picture pirates. The movie Black, the show Black Sails takes place, you know, during that, this period, this, this sort of uh, brief period of piracy. And so it's such a, a, a legendary moment and has become so defining of what piracy is and what it means uh, that I think part of the payoff of my book is to say, you don't get there till chapter 10. You know, that, that it's a small window. And the thing that you think that the picture in your head of how you define piracy doesn't happen until you get through an introduction in nine full chapters. And then finally you get to chapter 10 and you realize that this is an unusual, small, short, bizarre blip in the broad history of, you know, sea marauding. And so the idea is that piracy had been supported at all these different styles and types and, and, Types of individuals and have been actively supported on land, and then there's this transformation of how this had stopped. And by the time you get to 1716, the colonies, the leaders in the colonies, had made the decision that they had active uh, ability to engage in sort of larger commodity uh, importation, that they had no interest in supporting individuals or committing acts of crime against people who are technically at peace. Uh, in fact, they they really saw there was just there was just actually nothing. Uh, there was no need for them anymore. Uh, and they not only stopped supporting them, again, as you say, they, they actively attacked them uh, and went after them. And, and it creates the most, this period, which is called, what I call, and other historians have called this as well, which is the, the war on pirates. And it's a period when individuals stop attacking sort of traditional enemies, whether it's the Spanish or Islamic uh, shipping of the Mughal Empire, but then start attacking people who speak their own language in the Atlantic, and, and they start attacking their own people. Uh, and that's how you imagine pirates uh, today. But I really want to emphasize that that is actually, it's a short period, and it is really unusual. It's also, and one reason why, and, and I think this is seemingly uh boring explanation. I think most people would like to have a very exciting swashbuckling explanation of why that, that period ends. Uh, but it ends because it's just not self-sustaining. And I'll explain what I mean by that, which is that in the 1690s, if you're in Newport, Rhode Island, and someone comes up to you and says, I have a ship, and I'm going to sail to the Indian Ocean, and I'm going to attack the goods belonging to the Mughal Empire in India, and we're going to grab Arabian gold, and we're going to take silk and calico, and we're going to come back here in Newport, and you can buy land, and you can marry a local girl, and you're going to be, live happily ever after and never have to go to sea again. And not only that, but I have a piece of paper signed by the governor of Rhode Island that says I have a right to do this. And it's a privateering commission, and I'm going to, says I can attack the enemies, and I agree that, yes, the Mughal Empire is actually at peace with us, but 
doesn't matter. We all have an understanding that generally there are enemies, and and uh, trust me, the governor will will t- turn a blind eye to this. That's very appealing <laughs> to a lot of people. It's tremendously appealing that I could I could get on a boat a year later, I could come back and be set for the rest of my life. So that's in the 1690s. Now, in the 17 teens, someone like Blackbeard, let's say, sails up to the Newfoundland coast and he captures a fishing vessel with an 18-year-old man on it. And he goes up to the 18-year-old man and says, all right, join our pirate crew. And the young man says, okay, well, um, what are we going to do? What are we? What's your plan? Well, you know, we we could go and sail the Indian Ocean, but if we if we stole all those things, we don't have any place to to, to sell them anymore. We have no place to to dump those goods because we're not welcome openly in any of the old places we used to be welcome. So I think we're just going to attack our own people. We'll take their things. And so the the eighteen will say, okay, so you're, we're going to attack our own people, like our own our friends and family and people we know. I said, yeah, yeah, that's the that's the plan. We'll take their things. And so okay, so what are we going to do with the silver and gold that we take? Well, I, you know, I guess. There's not much we can do. There's no, there's no, we're not welcome anyplace anymore, so we can't really spend it. So I guess we'll just hold it for a period of time, maybe hoping for a pardon, but those don't come really often enough. And so, so I guess the silver and gold is not worth very much, but we can steal the food and we can drink a lot and, and get drunk all the time, and that, that could be interesting. But And so the 18-year-old says, okay, so will we ever be able to take that silver and gold and come back on land and enjoy myself? Says, well, no, that's not really an option anymore. We don't have any communities left to us. So you're never going to see your friends, or your family, or your loved ones ever again. And now that, that no one's welcoming us, in fact, the odds of, you know, most pirate ships last about six months now. Uh, so you're, the odds are you're probably going to be captured and you'll probably be executed once you're captured. And that probably will be within the next six months. You can imagine that that story is not particularly appealing. Uh, and even though that's the story, we always, you know, when little kids imagine, oh, I want to become a pirate one day, you know, Yes, if it was in the 1690s and you want to be a pirate and go to the ocean, I can imagine that's great. But if you want to be a pirate in the six, 17 teens, it's not a great prospect. Uh, and there's nothing particularly exciting about it. And it, it really ends by the 1720s in a very short period of time, in large part because crews just can't, can't maintain themselves. And it's, it, it's the opposite story of what most people want to hear, which is they want to hear that there were these freedom-fighting, exciting, independent machismo somehow individuals that just were ahead of their time somehow but just their society couldn't support them and then they were they were slaughtered you know and i, and I think it's more like no it was just just not self-sustaining why would you well, there's nothing appealing about joining one of those crews and newspapers uh and uh, the 18th century media sort of fed into this um negative image uh am i right yeah so one of the things i found um so that little that little window, that 17, 1716 to 1726, it is such a short period of time, but it is one of the most heavily written about, as you can imagine, because it is the source of almost most modern popular understandings of, of uh, piracy. So many people have written about it. And so I, when I got to that moment and I wanted to write about it in my own terms, I didn't want to rehash the sort of or debunk in, in the same terms that other historians have written, meaning I don't want to just write about, you know, the pop culture of pirates at sea in this popular period. But in fact, I want to stick with what I had done for the entire book, which is to really understand not so much the pirates themselves, but the people on land who are responding to those pirates. Because really the majority of my book involves people on land. 
and people on land who are springing pirates from prisons, people on land who are marrying, having, you know, local Quaker women who are marrying these pirates and they're buying land. So I was really interested in that interaction of the land and the sea. And I felt like when I, when I got to this last chapter that I really wanted to make sure I engaged with the experience was of this war on pirates period, not so much for the pirates at sea, but what was the experience of colonial communities on land and how do they understand it? How do they view it? How do they interpret it? What do they think was happening? And what was their motivation for this attack on pirates? And the, the thing that was the most the most obvious correlation that I found was the rise of this anti-piracy period with the rise of newspapers, meaning the rise of popular press. And in the 1690s, you had no newspapers. You had maybe newspapers from London that would arrive sporadically, but you didn't have your own local newspapers. After 1704, you have the first American newspaper, the Boston Newsletter. And in fact, the first news story is the capture of a pirate named John Quelch, which is an important part of the book in 1704. And then by 1718, you have another one. And in 1721, you have another newspaper. And so there's a direct correlation between the attack on pirates and the rise of what we would today call popular media or the rise of sort of reportage journalism. And so what I, what I was arguing in many respects is that in the 1690s, that story of when an, when someone arrives in a, in a tavern and says, don't ask me a lot of questions and I'll just tell you, I'll tell you all sorts of my own stories that you, there's not much you can do to refute those stories. There's nothing, or you don't even have a desire, a desire to refute those stories. But by the 17 teens, pirates are reported weekly uh, and in detail and their longitude and latitude of the names of the captain they attacked, the goods they took, the, exactly how they were treated. And so I was really fascinated by the sort of the way someone in one of these communities on a weekly basis would have thought about and responded and read and, and uh, uh, in the newspapers what they thought was perhaps the greatest scourge to their society it was this sort of attack on their shipping and on their people and on the ship captains that they were related to and knew and the families, uh, their families who were trying to travel perhaps back to London to visit family or, or in the Caribbean. And so I was really interested in that their own understanding of this experience through the popular media and through the rise of newspapers and not just that, but also the rise of other printed media as well. I mean, trial records become publicly consumed in larger quantities for the first time in the popular press sermons, uh, that are performed at trials and at executions become, uh, published and printed and disseminated a much uh, vaster quantity than had been before. And so you start just having a larger sort of popular culture that, gave you a sense of understanding what's happening around you that had not existed before. And I think it's interesting that I had one reviewer of my book say that they, that they were disappointed that the last chapter sort of spun out into sort of a literary theory, <laughs> kind of moment, which is not at all what I thought I was doing. Um, and I thought that was sort of funny, but I, I, I think I, I would explain it less that I be, all of a sudden became um, a literary scholar and more that I was really interested in just, uh, going back to what I had been doing all along. I don't actually think I was doing anything different other than in the fact that I was trying to really understand the mindset of these folks on land that I had worked, I've been had struggling to understand for all the chapters before. And, and this was really a, an avenue to understand them was the fact that they were now just permeated by this, this, this popular culture in the press about pirates. And then they then responded in their own particular way against it. Well, I think that that pulled the book together in uh 
a very nice fashion. Um, we've taken a lot of your time. You've been very generous. Uh, I have one or two last questions. Um, what are you working on now? Uh, that's great. I'm, I'm actually working on um, another book about piracy. <laughs> it, it, but in a very different terms. Um, uh, the book is called Infamous Designation. And it is essentially the idea that piracy in many respects in the early modern period is considered the worst of all possible crimes. And the reason for that is that it takes place away from communities. It involves different nations, not simply individuals. Uh, and because it takes place away from communities, it means that you can't have a jury of one's peers. You can't have a community that regulates that, those crimes. And so during early modern period, people would often in in trials and other places, they often say, of course, piracy is the one thing we determine as being the worst of all, all possible things and all possible transgressions. So everyone agreed on that. And so the book is about humanitarian problems or ethical and moral problems in the early modern period that people had a much more heavily or had much more heavily debated. Um, but the way people attacked them was by comparing it and relating it to piracy. And I'll give you a few examples. One would be the slave trade which during the 17th and 18th century, many people thought was fantastic, great, morally. Uh, and those who attacked it, one of the most successful ways they did so was by correlating and connecting it to piracy in the sense that this is a theft of a human being, uh, the way pirates steal human beings, and they are taken illicitly and, and from their homes and brought to some other place against their will. Uh, and so abolitionists, in the late 18th and early 19th century, began to say they need to actually use this as their rhetorical weapon by saying the slave trade is a form of piracy. And it completely succeeds. By the 19th century, almost every maritime country has the law on their books defines the slave trade as a form of piracy before the Civil War. Uh, and so I have chapter on privateering as a form of piracy, meaning those individuals who begin to question the purpose and value of private maritime warfare and, and say this is a medieval thing by the 19th century, they begin to do so by equating it with piracy. Uh, I have a chapter on empire, meaning when, are, when is empire building something that is legal and okay versus something that's piratical. Uh, I have a chapter on revolutions. When do, for example, revolutionaries become revolutionaries? And in the American Revolution, for example, when, when do those people who fight for the patriots uh, transform from being treasonous pirates to legitimate state actors committing legitimate acts of war. Uh, and it's a big question during the American Revolution. And the uh, the British in 1777 actually passed the Piracy Act that determines that all patriots at sea are pirates and can be treated that way. And they're thrown in prison and treated uh, as pirates in those particular ways. And so it's an important moment for the American Revolution. So this book is a little bit more uh, of an intellectual history. This involves more sort of law and literature, but it also uh, is about, in, in a bigger picture, it's about sort of the rise of humanitarian notions. It's about the rise of sort of uh, what we consider modern ideas about humanitarian principles, globally speaking. And it has a lot more uh, applications to modern problems. So almost every chapter has ends with uh, an application to a modern issue. So privateering, the debates over privateering are almost identical debates over the use of drone warfare, the use of uh, private firms to commit acts of war like Blackwater in Iraq and other places. Um, the debates over when do revolutionaries become pirates, stop being pirates and become revolutionaries is actually true of every revolution in the modern era, uh, including, for example, this was a debate that happened in Libya a few years ago over whether they were pirates or not. And so 
Um, so almost every, so this is a, a book that's really moved me a little bit more content, in a contemporary way because I'm really interested in sort of exploring the sort of modern legalistic issues of, of piracy and, and, uh, and sort of the broader humanitarian sort of developments over time. Excellent. And uh, one last question. Is there any book or website uh, that you uh, has caught your attention you might want to share with our listeners? Yeah, actually, I actually enjoy, I enjoy all sorts of blogs uh, like this one. I um, what is a blog that I like is uh, that is early America. It's more focused in early America called Ben Franklin's World. Um, that uh, that I really enjoy because it's my field <laughs> and it uh, allows me to sort of see the kind of work that my colleagues are using in my are actually using in my field. And um, I find a couple things that are interesting. I've noticed a lot of my colleagues have begun using blogs more and more in teaching. Uh, that they have, they've really incorporated. They've had students read books or excerpts of books, and then actually taken blogs, uh, including like Ben Franklin's World, and and use those to sort of talk about how the why the author wrote it, the, the book the way they did. Um, and so I, I find them actually they become much more useful in in the way people sort of uh, have apply them in the classroom. Uh, one other thing I I, this, I want to mention one other thing that you did not ask me about, but I sort of wanted to. Just, I mentioned early on when we were uh, in one of the, in my answers to an earlier question, I should say that the book, The Pirate's Nest, could not have happened uh, if it was not for a really generous grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. And it was a two-year postdoctoral fellowship that allowed me to, to turn what was essentially a pretty narrow dissertation into a gigantic book about the British Empire. And it was really... And it came at a particular moment that allowed me to do research in London, with all you know, throughout different archives in the United States, Bermuda, Caribbean, uh, and I really could not have produced this book without having had those resources and, and given that kind of time to be able to, to write something ambitious. And so I, I mentioned that because um, the recent budget that had been brought up by the White House, I think, within the last couple of days, has mentioned the elimination of bodies like the National Endowment for the Humanities. Uh, and I find that really alarming um, and troubling. And I, I hope this is just a suggestion that the White House has made, and this is something that does not actually come to fruition. Uh, but I should say that, that there, is a, there, are, is a, there's, there are bodies of work that are, can only be written without the need for... Uh, obsessing about book sales, meaning that, that there's certain books that can be written that are archivally driven, that you're really trying to tell something really important and new about the way we understand the past, but are not necessarily obsessively written with the idea that I can only survive by, by selling X number of books. And so I'm just going to write a more hokey, uh, simplistic story about the past. Um, and the National Endowment for Humanity allows people to write really tough, detailed <laughs> Uh, uh, archivally driven work that I think really changes the way we understand the past in dramatic and new ways that I think if you, if you didn't have those resources, you just wouldn't be able to do. Uh, and so I hope people will, you know, look into, to, and pay attention to discussions and debates about what's happening in the national endowment for humanities and will be as supportive as I can. Uh, because I'm not the only one who could, who was able to write, I think books that have just, um, change the way we understand the past without that kind of support. Yes, I agree. Uh, 
my book was uh, supported by the NEH uh, indirectly as well. And uh, we'll sign off with that. 